Hi, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you holiday readings from the following publications. Blackthen.com Newsbreak.com Travel Noir Magazine NewJersey.com Spectacular Magazine Delish.com The Miami Times And we're going to get things started off with a food-related article from Southern Living Magazine and its southernliving.com website. The title is, Whatever Happened to Eggnog Parties? It was written by Kristen Streel, capital S-T-R-E-A-H-L-E, and published December 9, 2022. The subtitle to the story is, These Events Have a Long History. How Should They Be Viewed Today? Hundreds of eggs, crates of liquors, pounds of sugar, gallons of milk and cream. Eggnog parties were once a staple of Christmas in Alabama, but the labor behind the beverage complicates its associated merriment. As polarizing as the drink might be today, eggnog was the height of festive luxury in the 19th and early 20th centuries. An Alabama eggnog is one that caresses the palate with velvety gentleness, journalist and author Jack Keitel explained in the late 1930s. And then, once it is within the stomach, suddenly it becomes the counterpart of a kicking mule. It is a fluffy, saffron-colored beverage, delicate in fragrance, daintily blended, and pungently persuasive. Antebellum plantations and homes in Alabama, such as Buena Vista, Gaineswood, Rosemont, Roseland, among others, spared no expense and served the drink in massive quantities. And Keitel tells us, always with fruit cake, lane cake, coconut cake, and salted nuts. According to Myrtle Miles, the coordinator of Alabama's contribution to the ambitious America Eats Project, a Works Progress Administration, WPA project, that collected first-hand accounts of America's culinary traditions, eggnog was indispensable, as much part of Christmas as a tree, in her words. Often overlooked, however, are enslaved and formerly enslaved African Americans and their labor in our understanding of these traditions. Their voices are not perfectly represented in the WPA files, but are, nonetheless, key to Keitel's research. In his work for the America Eats Project under Miles' direction, he spoke, for example, with an eggnog specialist, an elderly black man, Nat, who recalled having prepared the drink for more than 60 years. Nat's skill was one shared with other black Alabamians who, Keitel writes, were very proud and a dignity of their roles in keeping burning this light of tradition and who remain unequaled at their art of preparing nog. Many of Keitel's descriptions in his America Eats Project writings carry things like that of enslavement and the planting system after the end of the Civil War being examples of the benevolence of white planters and slave owners. We recognize that this was not, in fact, benevolence. However, his writings remain valuable to understanding this period of Southern history as few other projects attempted to gather first-person accounts of slavery and formerly enslaved people. Aware of their skill, these black men and women mused that white people wouldn't be able to maintain this hallmark of Christmas celebrations without them. Behind the scenes, black laborers carried out the work of gathering, preparing, and balancing eggnog's indulgent ingredients. Eggnog has long been the frothy centerpiece of Christmas in the southern U.S., though its origins lie elsewhere. Related to medieval posset, P-O-S-S-E-T, 
a hot beverage that mixed curdled dairy products with ale or wine, eggnog was reserved for affluent British people. Spices like nutmeg and cinnamon signaled the wealth they acquired through trading and extraction routes. Posset-related beverages became widely available in North America from the 16th century onwards. Similar Christmas drinks that use rum and sugar are recorded from the 17th and 18th centuries in the Caribbean, the result of heavy investment in and extraction from plantations. In antebellum Alabama, eggnog parties flourished at Christmas time. Recipes tend to include a mix of spirits, rum and brandy, whiskey and bourbon, and they show how planter families responded to fluctuating markets. In the 17th and 18th centuries, enslavers swapped expensive crates of whiskeys and scotches from Ireland and Scotland for cheaper rum, a product of Caribbean slave labor, and from the late 18th century, they began investing in the domestic distillation of bourbon and moonshine. An 1870 woodcut print, Christmas in the South Eggnog Party, published in Harper's Weekly, conveys the commotion of such gatherings. Well-dressed guests chat animatedly near the fireplace and sing around a piano haloed in candlelight. A large festoon bowl of eggnog sits on a table, its contents distributed in glittering cups. Another interaction underscores the nearly invisible laborers who toil during this jovial gathering. Below the bowl of eggnog, a small black child carries sticks of firewood. In contrast to the other children, one wears an elegant jacket and the other sits in a ribbon dress, he wears a simple woolen shift, indicating his servitude. In the background, a black woman's gaze cuts through the crowd. She watches the boy in the center of the room and the eggnog before moving to her next task. Forced laborers not only oversaw the smooth performance of this key social event, but they produced eggnog's ingredients and crafted the drink on an industrial scale. Recipes start with 100 eggs, and they are made without the aid of modern machinery. Eggnog was also distributed as a yearly gift from plantation families to their enslaved workforce. Carrie Mason of Milledgeville, Georgia, said that her mother's enslaver gave eggnog to everyone and later, as a free woman, she bought this richly caloric drink for herself. Recent studies of Christmas time in the South, however, question the ubiquitous image of a cheerful holiday plantation. Enslaved people received eggnog at the cusp of the New Year, when Alabama's largest slave auctions took place and families would soon be separated. Just as it is impossible to separate slavery from Southern history, writes Robert E. May in Yuletide and Dixie, slavery, Christmas, and Southern memory, so is it impossible to separate human bondage from the history of Christmas in the American South. Eggnog parties have fallen from popularity, of course. Instead, plantations and grand residences that once hosted them invite the local community and tourists to step back in time and attend holiday teas, galas, and candlelight tours. This stepping back in time is not welcome or comfortable for many. It's perhaps also not ethical, says Camille Bennett, the founder of Project Say Something. Bennett co-signed a letter that condemned antebellum-themed Christmas events organized at Belmont Plantation in Colbert County, Alabama. I don't know that it is possible to combine something celebratory with all the atrocities that happened there, especially knowing that over 100 black people built it and were held captive in that space. An honest portrayal of Christmas traditions would confront and include the memories and experiences of enslaved people, like the eggnog specialists. 
If we are working within a framework of remembering, acknowledging and reckoning, offers Bennett, then plantations can be a site of healing. They can be transformative. A lot of museums and spaces reckon with really painful history, and they inspire people to be catalysts for change. That was the reading of an article from Southern Living Magazine and its southernliving.com website. The title is, Whatever Happened to Eggnog Parties? It was written by Kristen Streel and published December 9, 2022. The next reading on today's African American Hour is about the holiday of Kwanzaa. It's from the website delish.com. The title is, The Seven Kwanzaa Traditions You Should Know About. It was written by Brandy Barnett and published December 9, 2022. The subtitle to the story is, The Spirit of the Holiday Should Be Celebrated Year-Round. Picture a beautiful bright cloth with intricate details meticulously woven through, a native language that sings the praises of the land from where it originated every time it is spoken. Ceremonial dances passed down from generation to generation. Dishes crafted from the fruits of the land. All of the things that make people from every corner of the earth beautifully unique. Things most people take for granted are things the descendants of formerly enslaved people don't have. Over time, the desire to reconnect with the motherland and cultivate an atmosphere for the community of these descendants to come back together and support each other evolved into a celebration we now honor annually. This is the celebration of Kwanzaa. The history of the descendants of the formerly enslaved is unique from others in the United States. After being ripped from their native land, their ancestors were also ripped of their culture. No more native language, traditional clothing, or anything that pointed back to the land from which they originated. Instead, assimilation was forced upon them until there were few remnants of their native culture. Kwanzaa, which in Swahili means first fruits, is a seven-day celebration that takes place each year from December 26th through January 1st. On each night of the holiday, families gather to light a candle on the Kinara. Each night honors one of the holiday's seven principles. The seven principles, or Nguzu Saba, capital N-G-U-Z-O, capital S-A-B-A, are unity, or Umoja, U-M-O-J-A, self-determination, or Kujichakulia, K-U-J-I-C-H-A-G-U-L-I-A, Collective Work and Responsibility, Ujima, U-J-I-M-A. Cooperative Economics, Ujamaa, U-J-A-M-A-A. Purpose, Nia, N-I-A. Creativity, Kuumba, K-U-U-M-B-A. And Faith, Imani, I-M-A-N-I. You'll notice many symbols during a typical Kwanzaa celebration, some which include ears of corn to represent each child in the family and the future they will create for our community, a straw or woven mat to represent our solid foundation, the aforementioned canar for the candle lighting ceremony, and a unity cup which represents one of the most important values, unity. The next section is titled, How to Celebrate Kwanzaa. Another hallmark of Kwanzaa is a gift exchange. These gifts are very special and meaningful. They are oftentimes handmade items given to the people who mean the most to you. The gifts can challenge the receiver or be something meant to help the receiver fulfill their purpose. Throughout the celebration, three colors are emphasized, 
The color black is used to represent the people. Red represents the bloodshed, and green reinforces hope in knowing we have a rich future ahead. During Kwanzaa, many communities and organizations will have festivals showcasing the beauty of the African culture. People will gather to join in traditional dances, listen to music, support Black-owned businesses, eat traditional food, and more. The spirit of Kwanzaa is not only celebrated for one week, but should be embodied throughout the whole year. Ensuring that dollars are circulating throughout the Black community through Black-owned businesses, creating financial opportunities for home ownership, ensuring proper health care is easily accessible, and ensuring that education is equitable for all are year-round priorities. The next time you visit your favorite restaurant that is Black-owned, recreate a recipe from your favorite Black chef or food influencer, or are invited into the home of someone who you have a great relationship with, Think about how you can play a part in keeping the spirit of Kwanzaa alive year-round. That was the article, The Seven Kwanzaa Traditions You Should Know About. It appeared at the Delish.com website. It was written by Brandy Barnett and was published December 9, 2022. The next reading on today's African American Hour is about a historical event that happened on Christmas Day. It's from the NJ.com website of New Jersey. The title is, Here's What Happened After Washington Crossed the Delaware with Black Patriots on Board. It was published December 11, 2022, and was written by Steve Strunsky. It's a long-standing Christmas Day tradition to reenact General George Washington's overnight crossing of the Delaware River on December 25th and 26, 1776, when the future first president led a flotilla of 2,400 Continental Army troops from the Pennsylvania side to New Jersey. But adding to that tradition for the first time this year, on the same day as a practice crossing, Garden State preservationists and reenactors staged what they hope will become an annual event Sunday known as Washington's Landing in New Jersey, intended to recall two key points sometimes overshadowed by the dramatic, though, apocryphal image of Washington standing at the bow of a wooden boat, gazing valiantly ahead. First, as tactically bold and brilliant as the crossing proved to be, it was only one leg of a longer journey, immediately followed by a march on the Jersey side of the river eight miles south to victories in the First and Second Battle of Trenton on December 26 and January 2nd. The Battle of Princeton followed on January 3, 1777. The three clashes turned the tide of the war from the British colonizers to the American colonists fighting for independence. Both sides pretty much thought the war was over. The rebellion crushed, said Mark Sirak, a historian with the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection State Park Service at Washington Crossing State Park. This is that moment when we were able to transform the viewpoint of many Americans and get them behind the cause. The war ended in 1783, six years before Washington was elected president. The other main point of Sunday's event was to remind or inform New Jerseyans and other Americans that, as in many key moments of the American Revolution, black patriots played a role, crossing the river, marching down the Old River Road, now known as Bear Tavern Road, and fighting with Washington and Generals Nathaniel Greene and John Sullivan in those pivotal battles. We're here to let people know we were there, said Algernon Ward, commander of the 1st Rhode Island Regiment, a black reenactment group based in Trenton but named for the predominantly black real-life military unit from the Ocean State. 
we are not observers of history, we are participants. Ward, 69, a retired state research scientist and Trenton native, said the Rhode Island 1st Regiment was formed after the Delaware Crossing and New Jersey battles. But he said that individual black soldiers did take part in them as members of other regiments before the Rhode Island 1st was formed and trained at Valley Forge. Ward said the crossing's participants included Black Joe Brown, among a group of oarsmen from Marblehead, Massachusetts, who powered troops across the river in a fleet of what is thought to have been 15 to 20 Durham boats that blizzardly December night. On Sunday, the 18 African-Americans from the Trenton and Philadelphia areas who make up the reenactment regiment set up an encampment on the New Jersey side of the river depicting living conditions in other parts of colonial military life. Ward noted that other black Revolutionary War heroes included Crispus Attucks, a Massachusetts seaman of African and Native American descent, who was among the six people fatally shot by British troops in the Boston Massacre on March 5, 1770, and is widely regarded as the first person killed in the war. He was known as the first casualty of the revolution, said Ward, who began reenacting 20 years ago at the urging of a friend after he had little interest in history in school thanks to its dry curriculum and lack of hands-on activities. We were there from the beginning to the end of the American Revolution. The area around the river where the crossing occurred is composed of New Jersey and Pennsylvania state parks, which comprise a location known collectively as the Washington's Crossing National Historic Landmark. Washington Crossing Bridge links the two sides. A private Pennsylvania group known as the Friends of Washington Crossing Park have organized the Christmas Day Crossing for the past seven decades, an event that will take place as usual this year. Amy Wukenstein, a trustee of the group's New Jersey counterpart, the Washington Crossing Park Association, said she and others were eager to honor the events in the Garden State following the crossing and came up with the idea for Sunday's landing party in conjunction with the State Park Service and the 1st Rhode Island Regiment. That was a reading of the article, Here's What Happened After Washington Crossed the Delaware, with Black Patriots on board. It was published December 11, 2022 at the NJ.com website and was written by Steve Stronsky. The next story on today's African American Hour was originally published in the New York Times newspaper. But this reading is from Spectacular Magazine and its SpectacularMag.com website. The title is Tracing the Origins of a Black American New Year's Tradition. It was written by Phyllis Coley and published December 29, 2021. On New Year's Day, black American families around the country will sit down to eat a variation on green vegetables and peas, joining in an enduring tradition meant to usher in opportunity in the year ahead. I don't let a New Year's Day go by without having some form of greens, pork, and black-eyed peas, the food historian Dr. Jessica B. Harris said. The choice of greens, usually cooked with pork for flavor, comes from the perception among black Americans that folded collard greens look like paper money, said author and food scholar Adrian Miller. Eating greens on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day is believed to bring about greater financial prosperity. The peas promise good luck, health, and abundance. But while these rituals have become largely associated with the American South, their roots can be traced back to the meeting of West African and European traditions, Miller said. Collard greens, for instance, originated in Northern Europe. Collards are a corruption of cold wort, C-O-L-E-W-O-R-T. 
cold wart is any non-heading cabbage, said Dr. Harris, the author of High on the Hog, A Culinary Journey from Africa to America. They became part of the food ways of African Americans. Africanism is in the cooking of them, not in the greens themselves. That cooking method of long, low, and slow, and with the potlucker being consumed, is a very different thing. And celebrating on the first day of the year is more of a global tradition, Miller said. In Italy, for example, lentils, said to resemble coins, are cooked down with pork and served for luck. In West Africa, he added, there were certainly auspicious days. But this idea that the first day of the calendar year and doing something on that day would bring good luck, to my knowledge, doesn't exist in West African societies prior to European contact. West African spiritual practices often revolved around deities who had favorite foods like black-eyed peas, which are native to the continent. The forced migration of enslaved Africans to North America and their interactions with European colonists led to a convergence of customs. It's all kind of messy, Miller said, but you can see this process of cultural diffusion, borrowing, appropriation, all of those things that were happening in previous centuries to the point where it coalesces into the tradition we have now. Geography also played a role in the variety of interpretations that emerged. In regions of the country influenced by the British, collards or kale might be served on New Year's Day, while in states like Louisiana, where there was a stronger German influence, people often enjoyed cabbage. As white Americans looking to take on a wholly American identity began to reject European customs, black people found ways to transform those customs. Black and Southern traditions eventually became inextricable. The first documented Black New Year celebration is recounted in Tony Tipton Martin's Jubilee, Recipes from Two Centuries of African-American Cooking. In the book, she shares the origins of Watch Night, when Black Americans congregate at church for song, praise, and prayer before the stroke of midnight. During the first such event, on December 31, 1862, or Freedom's Eve, enslaved people in the South Carolina Lowcountry gathered in churches to await news of their freedom under the Emancipation Proclamation, which was to be signed on New Year's Day, 1863. Their celebrations included a menu of Hoppin' John, collard greens with hog jowls and ribs. My point in publishing these stories in Jubilee was to be able to tell a broader story about African Americans in New Year's Eve, Tipton Martin said. This allows you to see strains of African tradition in things we think about as classic America. The blurring of what Tipton Martin calls good luck food traditions can lead to erasure. Amethyst Ganaway, a low country chef and writer, notes that people often refer to black-eyed peas and rice and Hoppin' John interchangeably. Both make appearances on black American tables, but Hoppin' John is a one-pot meal of rice and field peas, a variety of cowpea that's largely available only in the low country. It is also a bit lighter and redder and has a creamier consistency than his black-eyed cousin. It's important to make that distinction because it's really the origins of those traditions that get lost, Ganaway said. So many people think that Gullah, low country traditions, and people are dying off. No, we're here, she added. It actually starts here, and it's important to remember that it starts here for a reason. So our identity, our food ways aren't being erased and turned into this mainstream thing. Black Americans have found celebration in other foods, too. 
J.J. Johnson, the chef and owner of Field Trip in New York, takes guidance from his grandmother, a North Carolina native, when he prepares her seafood gumbo with a few alterations on New Year's Eve. I was taught that if you were eating good going into the new year, then you would be good and you will be healthy, Johnson said. For me, a gumbo like this represents family, luxury, and joy. That was a reading of the article, Tracing the Origins of a Black American New Year's Tradition. It was written by Phyllis Coley. This reading was from Spectacular Magazine and its SpectacularMag.com website and was published December 29, 2021. But the story originally appeared in the New York Times newspaper. The next reading on today's program was found at the news.yahoo.com website, but it's from Travel Noir magazine. The title is The Black Expat, Ideas to Celebrate Christmas Away from Home. It was written by Amara Amaria and was published December 9, 2022. For many, Christmas is a time for family and traditions, but how can travelers and expats celebrate Christmas away from home? Naturally, a huge part of expat life is adjustment, and the holidays are no exception. For many expats who make the move, being away from home during the holidays is a huge challenge. One of the biggest anxieties in the expat community is making the holidays feel right. The reality is, there is no easy way around it. There are certainly a few tips to help enjoy the holidays in full. Here are our top five travel noir tips to celebrate Christmas away from home as a black expat. The number one tip is to do whatever feels comfortable. Whatever traditions and customs you can keep, honor them. The joy of the Christmas period is being able to settle entirely into your rest. Enjoy in whatever way feels best. For instance, if you're used to attending church or mass, why not find the local service and attend? If you're a huge lover of Christmas movies, prepare a movie marathon. If you're a gift giver, get organized and send your loved ones personalized gifts. Speaking of loved ones, virtually connecting with family and friends is a fulfilling way to feel part of the fun back home. One suggestion is to organize a video call at a few intervals in the day. Let your family in on your new holiday traditions while connecting with your previous ones. While feeling at home in your new environment, it is always a joy to share the love, even if through a screen. Maintaining tradition is an incredible way to keep the Christmas energy flowing. However, there's nothing wrong with indulging in something entirely new. Why not find out how your local community celebrates Christmas and join in? If there are any festivities that you can add to your new Christmas routine, even better. This is a perfect symbolic way to integrate into your new expat life. Cooking is a huge part of Christmas traditions around the world. Food is often used as a way to connect to memories, which explains why many cultures have food reserved for Christmas Day. Hello, Aki and saltfish breakfast for Jamaicans. Recreating these dishes is sure to bring you some joy and reinstate that Christmas spirit. This is also a good way to get to know the customs in your community. What do they typically eat for Christmas dinner? Is there anyone to teach you new recipes? Perhaps asking other guests and expats to bring a dish will help you indulge fully in your new Christmas traditions. This one also works if you're solo. Cook exactly what you want, eat as much as you want, and do Christmas your way. Volunteering at local shelters is a perfect way to give back to your new community. It is also a great way to fill the time in your day if it is your first Christmas away from home. 
Being able to give is the key element to Christmas Day, so volunteering and spreading joy through offering your time and service is a generous way to hold space for joy in the day. This is also super fun when you include others and make friends while doing so. The more, the merrier. That was a reading of the article, The Black Expat, Ideas to Celebrate Christmas Away from Home. It was written by Amara Amaria. This article is from Travel Noir Magazine on the news.yahoo.com website and was published December 9th, 2022. The next reading on today's program is from the original.newsbreak.com website. The title is Chitlins, also known as Chitterlings, My Family's Holiday Cooking Tradition with Recipe by Nola Sheik. It was published December 9th, 2022. With Chitlins about to make their annual appearance on my family's holiday menu, so returns the controversy around the delicacy that's either loved or hated. Chitlins, C-H-I-T-L-I-N-S, are sometimes spelled and referred to as Chitterlings, C-H-I-T-T-E-R-L-I-N-G-S. It all boils down to whether to eat or not to eat chitlins have been the topic in black households for decades. Chitlins, the intestines of pigs or cows, have been a delicacy worldwide for centuries. While many people know of chitlins from the black southern palate, a form of chitlins is prepared in most cultures, including Europe, Asia, and South America. The next section is titled A Brief History. Some African-Americans condemn chitlins because of their tie to slavery in health or religious reasons, or do not eat chitlins because of the so-called pungent, shitty smell. They believe we should stop eating the food that our ancestors survived off of because it reminds them of oppression. Instead, we should celebrate all they endured and overcame. The rations they lived on are the foundation of our food history and culinary genius. So instead of frowning at the mere mention of chitlins, neck bones, and other items we feel are beneath us now, thankfully some of us continue to pass on our delicious food legacy while creating new time-honored food traditions. We can now eat what we want. These are our thoughts. While eating chitlins was very popular in the early 1900s, they have been reduced to a ritual that some adhere to for family traditions but have been slowly taken out of our regular meals. When slavery was legal in America, enslavers fed their enslaved workers the discarded parts of vegetables and butchered animals, such as bitter turnip greens, sweet potatoes, ears, neck bones, feet, and intestines. While the best cuts of meat, particularly the upper portions of the leg and back, hence the affluence-denoting phrase, high on the hog, were for the master's household. These meager food rations were low in quality and nutritional value. However, our enslaved ancestors' skillful creativity enabled them to cook these scraps into tasty dishes that provided sustenance. The food was so delicious that enslavers suddenly wanted some for themselves. It is believed that chitlings were given to enslaved people as scraps, which holds some truth. But the history of chitlings goes beyond slavery. According to the Bay State Banner, Eating chitterlings is not a derivative of American slavery. Instead of holding close to their West African diaspora ritualistic traditions, eating an animal's innards is sacred. Also, since eating animal intestines was popular in Britain and France, enslavers would request these dishes way before American slavery. Although the history reflects the brutality of the slavery era, it is a dish enjoyed by both cultures before American history. 
The earliest written down recipes for chitlings, now called chitlins, shows up from a cookbook in Europe from Great Britain in the 1700s. Chitlins remained popular well into the Jim Crow era when black eateries served it with other dishes of kindred origin, now known as soul food. In addition to indicating where black artists could perform during the period, the Chitlin Circuit established a touring route that fans could follow. The next section is titled Chitlins Today. Chitlins went from being scraps given to the enslaved to a typical black family Sunday entree and are now an expensive delicacy many do not partake in due to this new generation of plant-based eating. I don't know if the millennials know what chitlins is because we have lost generations of traditional soul food cooks. There are some people who continue to cook chitlins, but like my family, it's only during the holiday season. It's common to find chitlins on the menu at some soul food restaurants, especially in the South, as a weekly special. Gourmet restaurants have added an overpriced version of chitlins or pig intestine to their menus, but you will not find the black soul food version here. The fact that many people of color are moving away from pork, the pungent smell, and the difficulty of cleaning the meat make this an expensive delicacy that we will not see in the American black kitchen moving into the next 100 years unless a significant pivot in food occurs. The next section is titled, My Family Tradition. I do not eat much pork and typically cook chitterlings yearly unless someone requests them because they require so much preparation. It's a long, tedious job to clean chitterlings properly, and I've been eating and cleaning them since I was five. Some believe that chitlins stink, period, but that's not true. The smell comes from the feces inside of the intestines and the water in the bucket. Chitlins smell because they have not been cleaned properly. If you cook chitlins without washing them thoroughly, the funky smell will fill the entire house and the chitlins will taste as funky as they smell and will be tough and gritty. We all have food preferences, but it gets me when people say food is nasty. It makes me think of all the inedible food our ancestors had no choice but to eat. I get how smelling and looking at a bucket of long, funky intestines with poop and partially decomposed bits of whatever the pig ate and call it nasty, but somewhere along the line, our people had to make it tasty. And now, chitterlings are hashtagged as soul food. I have many memories of sitting at the table with a towel under my elbows to catch all the funky chitterling juice as we stripped the bad part of the so-called meat part of the intestines. We had a contest of who could clean and peel the bad part off the one long piece and who could clean their entire bucket first. Of course, there was no actual prize, but bragging rights went a long way in the family. Grab a bucket and have some fun with the kids pulling the intestines apart followed by boiling them up with some fresh herbs and spices to get a feel and taste of how our ancestors experienced it. I say don't knock it till you try it, and honestly, chitlins don't smell as bad as people claim. I have smelled much worse cooking in my years. My 10-year-old daughter helped me clean the chitlins and barely complain about the smell. She said cleaning them was satisfying and loved learning about our food history. My sister has taken over making my family's annual Christmas chitling cooking and twerked my mama's original recipe but they are still good. There are several methods of cooking chitlins, such as boiled or battered and fried. Some people add tomato paste to the chitlins served over spaghetti. Others may knead a roux and add a brown gravy mix and serve over white rice. I like my chitlins cooked till tender with a Trinity seasoning blend, garlic, red pepper flakes, parsley, bay leaf, and seasoning salt, 
served over rice with a side of potato salad and a little hot sauce. The next section lists the ingredients. 20 pounds clean pork chitlings thawed. 1. Large baking potato. 2. Large onions peeled and halved. 1. Green bell pepper chopped. 3. Cloves garlic. 3. Stalks of celery with leaves. 1. Cup of apple cider vinegar. 2. Tablespoons salt. 1. Bay leaf. 1. Teaspoon creole seasoning or to taste and one teaspoon red pepper flakes or to taste. Thoroughly wash chitlings. Remove excess fat and soak in apple cider vinegar for 30 minutes. Next, cut the chitlings into small pieces, one to two inches. Put them in a medium-sized pot and add about two cups of water to cover them. Cook on high heat for about one hour. Pour the chitlings into a colander to drain and discard the water. Rinse them thoroughly. Rinse the pot well and place it over medium heat. Add a tablespoon of cooking oil, the onion, garlic, and bay leaf, and saute for about a minute. Then add bell peppers and celery and saute for another minute. Next, add the chitlings, bay leaves, creole seasoning, and water. Give everything a nice stir, then season with salt and pepper to taste. Cover the pot and place it over medium-high heat. Cook for about two to three hours until chitterlings are tender. Check the pot to ensure the water hasn't cooked out. Add more as needed. Chitterlings are done when they tear apart easily when pulled. Like many other great soul food dishes, chitlins taste even better after the flavor has soaked in for a few hours. That was a reading of the article. Chitlins, also known as chitterlings, my family's holiday cooking tradition with recipe. It was written by Nola Sheik. It was published December 9th, 2022, and this article was at the original.newsbreak.com website. The next reading on today's program is about an old and rare Afro-American holiday tradition. The title is Jonkonkus. The forgotten holiday tradition of the African-American Christmas brought over from Africa during slavery. This was found at the blackthin.com website and was written by the Black Thin staff. Have you heard of the strange African-American holiday celebration called John Conkus? Capital J-O-H-N-K-A-N-K-U-S. There aren't many places in the world where the tradition survived, but if you look hard, you just might find it. With origins along the west coast of Africa, this tradition is mostly found in the Caribbean, Today, the tradition includes a street parade with dance and mime-style performances. Although there are no written records, John Conkus is believed to have come from West African nations and is either named after a popular king, John Connor, K-O-N-E-R, or a folkloric witch doctor. During the celebration, African slaves used whatever materials they could find to create masks and created elaborate processions set against homemade drums. Other instruments were made out of bones, sticks, and whatever else they could find. Although this tradition largely remained popular in the Caribbean, there were also recorded street celebrations among American slaves. There are records of cities in North Carolina and Virginia and New Orleans that celebrated Jonkonkus festivals to go along with the holiday season during the mid-1800s. In Africa, the tradition was observed earlier in the slave trade during the mid-1700s. There is nothing quiet about this tradition, 
It is a spectacle of colors, dance, and music set against grotesque masks. Those watching the parade are often entertained and frightened at the same time. Parade participants dress in costumes and masks and dance vibrantly for communities thankful for a break from work. It was the celebration for those who could not afford traditional forms of entertainment. There were very few John Conkis celebrations after the Civil War, mostly because it had been associated with slavery. In the early 1900s, future generations would refer to the practice as coonering, C-O-O-N-E-R-I-N-G. A misspelling of coonering, K-O-O-N-E-R-I-N-G, a title many slaves had given it. And because the masks were always so ugly, no one wanted to be associated with coonering anymore. As white society began to adopt the practice into childhood antics, the African-American tradition died out. The tradition of John Connor is not completely lost. Celebrations are still held in the Bahamas. You can even read about the American slave experience in the children's story, Irene Jenny and the Christmas Masquerade. Through festivals like these and stories that continue to carry on, the history of the African-American Christmas tradition continues for generations to come. That was a reading from the BlackThen.com website titled, John Conkus, the forgotten holiday tradition of the African-American Christmas brought over from Africa during slavery. It was originally published December 17, 2015. The next reading on today's African-American Hour is about a holiday that takes place in some Afro-American communities. It's from the Miami Times newspaper of Miami, Florida, and it's MiamiTimesOnline.com website. The title is, Freedom's Eve Reflects Victory Over Trespass. It was written by Meredith Hayes, capital M-E-R-D-I-E-S, and was published December 28, 2021. This New Year's Eve marks the 159th anniversary of Freedom's Eve, a famous date in black history when millions of black people anxiously awaited the announcement that they had at last been freed from bondage. On December 31, 1862, American slaves were awaiting for the clock to strike midnight in order to seize the promise of freedom outlined in the Emancipation Proclamation. Only 3.1 million of the country's 4 million slaves were declared free from bondage of oppression with the issuance of the decree. The soon-to-be freed slaves stayed awake all night and watched the darkness turn into a new dawn while awaiting for the news. Since then, the tradition of celebrating Freedom's Eve has been a cultural ritual. Freedom's Eve was inspired by the watch night service tradition. The event can be traced back to the Moravians, a Christian denomination in the Czech Republic during the mid-1700s. John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church, adopted the practice and began incorporating watch night services into the Methodist tradition. In 1770, the first watch night was held in America at St. George's Methodist Church in Philadelphia. Two slaves, Richard Allen and Absalom Jones, were a part of the congregation and would later leave the church after experiencing discrimination to establish the African Methodist Episcopal Church, AME. The AME church tradition subsequently inspired the celebration of Freedom's Eve as black persons gathered together to recognize the progression of Freedom's journey. Frederick Douglass was an AME member and once said of Freedom's Eve that we shout for joy that we live to record this righteous decree. For black people, the prayers of their ancestors finally came to fruition as they reached a future of freedom and liberty.
Freedom's Eve was a call to action. It was a moral imperative to fight for the full realization of freedom for black men and women united in the struggle for liberty. The tradition is a symbol of not only the struggle for freedom from slavery, but also a mark of tenacious courage. Freedom's Eve connects history with the present since it informs black America of the present challenge to secure the blessings of liberty for future generations. Less than a decade after the first Freedom's Eve celebration, many blacks had become resistant to the idea. They wanted to distance themselves from the more painful and degrading aspect of a collective past. They felt that celebrating emancipation kept the memory of slavery alive. After 1870 and continuing into the 20th century, many in the black middle class advocated halting Freedom's Eve commemorations. In 1876, Theophilus G. Stewart, an AME minister, insisted that blacks would never unite behind a common history because the racist narrative was centered on slavery and slave history is no history, he professed. Stewart penned a series of essays about blacks in New York City in explaining that it was difficult to find a colored man, even from the South, who will acknowledge that he actually passed through the hardships of slavery. Men do not like to be referred to slavery now. Many contemporary black Americans may not feel the need to continue watching for freedom. Some contend that blacks are far removed from the evil days of slavery. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said more than half a century ago, the Negro is still not free. Yet there has been undeniable progress, albeit slow and painstaking, made in the struggle for liberty and equality. Black Americans traditionally have gathered in churches on New Year's Eve. It's an opportunity to praise God for bringing them safely through the year and recounting the celebratory theme of how we got over. The service usually begins anywhere between 7 and 10 p.m. and ends at midnight with the entrance of the new year. Over time, there have been instances where clergy and mainline denominations question the propriety of linking religious services with a secular holiday like New Year's Day. Those who faithfully observe the service insist that the importance of overcoming past injustice becomes a transformational experience that resounds in the service's singing and praise. Many black people probably do not specifically celebrate Freedom's Eve per se in the sense of reflecting on their ancestors' freedom from slavery. Yet, the direct link between Freedom's Eve celebrations and Watch Night undoubtedly has both explicit and implicit impacts on many black Christians' observance of the tradition. Some black worship leaders fully honor the Freedom's Eve tradition in its most sympathetic form. Many black Christians from various denominations, including Methodist, Baptist, and Pentecostal churches, implicitly reflect on the spirit of Freedom's Eve celebrations by bringing in the new year with jubilation and praise, praying, and shouting. They thank God for seeing them through another year as they anticipate the fulfillment of their hopes and dreams and, most of all, God's promises in the new year. There are traditional hymns that black people sing in reflecting how God has been and remains to be their source of hope in the freedom struggle. We've Come This Far by Faith is a congregational hymn that can encourage black persons to cogitate how far they have come in America through slavery, the black codes, the Jim Crow era, the civil rights movement, the election of President Barack Obama, and beyond. Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past is an English hymn written by Isaac Watts. The song paraphrases Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses. Here, Moses distinguishes the eternal nature of God from the finite nature of human beings. Moses muses how God has been a dwelling place and source of refuge for the children of Israel 
and for these purposes, the Black children of America. As Black people ring in the new year, the hymns are said to inspire Black Christians to ruminate how God has been their sustaining power and source of security throughout the ages, their help in ages past, and their hope for the year to come. Today, there are many ways to honor the anniversary of Freedom's Eve. Start by sharing the story of Freedom's Eve with family, friends, and youth in the community. It is an opportunity to reclaim history with a sense of great pride in shining a light on and proclaiming victory over the darkness of slavery. That was a reading of the article, Freedom's Eve Reflects Victory Over Trespass. It was written by Meredith Hayes, published December 28, 2021, and appeared in the Miami Times newspapers, miamitimesonline.com. The next reading on today's program is about events happening at the Smithsonian Museum over the holidays. This is from the Southern Maryland News and its somdnews.com website. The title is, African American History Museum Examines Impact of Race. It was written by Jesse Yeatman and was published December 11, 2022. The Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture hosted the inaugural National Conversation on Race, Reckoning with Our Racial Past this month, the first in a series of conversations across the U.S. that will bring together diverse groups of individuals to discuss race and racism in historical, cultural, and contemporary context. The panel discussion explored how events during the past two years have affected and shaped the ongoing legacy of race and racism in the United States. The program, part of the Smithsonian's Our Shared Future, Reckoning with Our Racial Past initiative, included remarks from Smithsonian Secretary Lonnie G. Bunch III and a musical performance by composer and producer Nolan Williams Jr. For more information about that, visit the website OurSharedFuture.si.edu. The museum will hold its annual Freedom's Eve program, providing a look into how enslaved African-Americans celebrated New Year's Eve in the past and how the African-American community uses food to help bring good fortune into the new year. The two-part program will include curated in-person activities to help plan goals for the new year and conclude with a virtual concert featuring piano prodigy Matthew Whitaker. This year, beginning December 26th and continuing through January 1st, the public can view a new video on Kwanzaa's history and how to celebrate featuring museum specialist and oral historian Kelly Navies. The public can view the video and learn more about this seven-day celebration of African-American culture on the museum's Kwanzaa webpage at nmaahc.si.edu forward slash Kwanzaa, which is spelled K-W-A-N-Z-A-A. Users can find enlightening videos, unique family activities to do at home, and special holiday recipes rooted in Black culinary traditions. Freedom's Eve, Celebrate the Coming New Year, will be held on Saturday, December 31st, from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. New Year's Eve has been a cause for celebration since December 31st, 1862, when enslaved people in the Confederate States stayed up until midnight to watch and wait for the freedom granted by the Emancipation Proclamation. At the close of this year, program attendees can honor the past and present at the museum with activities that invite them to consider their hopes and dreams for the future, learn about the past, 
and learn about foods that will bring luck and good fortune. Admission is free, however, registration is required. Freedom's Eve Watch Night Concert with musician Matthew Whitaker will be held on Saturday, December 31st from 7.30 to 8.30 p.m. virtually. Celebrate Watch Night with a virtual concert by jazz pianist Matthew Whitaker. At 21, he already has many firsts and honors to his name, who has said, I am a musician who happens to be blind. I have been blessed with a God-given gift in my prayers that I can continue to be a blessing and inspiration to others. Audiences will be able to watch the event on the museum's YouTube channel until January 31, 2023. For more information about the museum, visit nmaahc.si.edu. Or you can call Smithsonian Information at area code 202-633-1000. That was a reading of the article, African American History Museum Examines Impact of Race. It was written by Jesse Yeatman, published December 11, 2022, and appeared in the Southern Maryland News, somdnews.com website. We're going to wrap up today's program with a couple of audiobook reviews. The first is the book titled A Kwanzaa Fable by Eric V. Coppich, read by Gregory Daniel. It was published in 1995 and will take about 1.5 hours to read. With realism, honor, and a lot of humor, this modern-day fable covers both the struggle of a young boy's coming of age and the principles of the African-American cultural celebration Kwanzaa. After tragedy strikes his small family, 13-year-old Jordan is at a crossroads. It's his time to become an honorable man like his father, but will he choose that path? Gregory T. Daniels' portrayal of Jordan makes listeners sympathetic to his difficult life choices. Through the guidance of a family friend, Jordan learns to apply the principles of Kwanzaa to his daily life and passes over the threshold of becoming a man. Daniel brings energy and reverence to a tale that will teach as well as entertain adults and children alike. That was a review of the audiobook, A Kwanzaa Fable by Eric V. Coppich. This review was found at the audiophilemagazine.com website. The final reading of the day is an audiobook review from the audiophilemagazine.com website. The title of the audiobook is The Bennett's Christmas by Brenda Jackson, read by Kim Staunton. This falls into the category of romantic fiction and will take about 10.75 hours to listen to. In a knowing tone, narrator Kim Staunton shares two holiday romances featuring the Bennett sisters, Monica and Sabrina. Monica finds love with P.I. Landon on a singles cruise, while Sabrina falls for another doctor, her housemate Parker. Staunton shares the sisters' reluctant attitudes towards romance, knowing, as listeners do, that they have both found their perfect matches. Landon's voice is quite deep in contrast to Monica's higher voice, while Parker and Sabrina's are more mid-range but still distinct in conversation. Staunton narrates smoothly, choosing to emphasize phrases that illuminate the sisters' dilemmas. Steamy passages are delivered in soft, seductive tones. Listeners will feel the emotional impact as the sisters find love during the Christmas season. This book was published in November of 2022. That is a review of the audiobook, 
The Bennett's Christmas by Brenda Jackson, read by Kim Staunton. This review was found at the audiophilemagazine.com website and was published in November of 2022. That's all for this week. I'm Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour.